In the early morning hours of April 15, 1912, the unsinkable cruise ship called the RMS Titanic sank beneath the ice-cold waves of the Atlantic Ocean. You're probably familiar with the story. 1,500 people drowned that morning, and only about 700 people survived. Um, but there's an interesting story about a handful of these survivors who escaped that sinking ship on board what was called uh, lifeboat number one. Lifeboat number one. Now these were mostly men, despite the whole call for women and children first, and a good number of them were very wealthy first-class passengers. Two notable survivors on lifeboat number one were Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon, an Olympian and a wealthy landowner, and his wife, Lady Lucy Duff Gordon, who was a famous fashion designer at the time. Now, we don't know all the details, but it seems pretty clear that the Gordons did not have their priorities entirely in line. As the Titanic sank beneath the waves and hundreds were drowning, Lady Gordon's response was reportedly, there goes your beautiful nightdress, gone. Yikes. It's uh, rumored that the Gordons convinced or possibly even bribed the crew members on the lifeboat not to row back for survivors. They felt it was too risky and they might get pulled under themselves and so they rowed away from the wreckage. Now again, we don't know all the details for sure. There's a lot of rumors that came from that story, but we do know this. When the RMS Carpathia, the, the boat that came to rescue survivors, when they did rescue lifeboat number one, which was a boat designed to hold 40 people, there were only 12 survivors on board. It really makes you wonder, what would have happened if these survivors had spent a little bit more time thinking beyond themselves and their own survival, if they had rowed in the other direction? And I tell you this story because in many ways, I think it's a perfect metaphor for what's happening in the Church of America right now. Uh, the, the church, broadly, the Big Sea Church, is, is like a lifeboat or a, or a group of lifeboats in the middle of a dangerous ocean. Humanity has been shipwrecked by sin and brokenness. Our world is splintering and sinking all around us. Violence, anxiety, hatred, loneliness, and pain, we're drowning. We're drowning. If it wasn't for the lifeboat of God's grace, we would all be sinking beneath the waves. But thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus, we can now have hope of salvation, of, of restoration, not just for ourselves, but for the entire world. On this sturdy lifeboat, we no longer have to live in fear. And guess what? There's really good news. There's plenty of room to spare. And yet, how many in the church today tend to treat this situation just like Sir and Lady Gordon? Looking out for number one, rowing away from the wreckage and, and treating the other survivors in the water as just an unfortunate afterthought. What kind of a lifeboat do we want Grace Church to be? To, to take this metaphor, do we want to turn inward? Do we want to hunker down right now, wait to be rescued? Or are we willing to turn back, to, to row into the danger, into the mess, risking our comfort and our safety in the hope that we might be able to bring more broken people into this lifeboat and into their salvation? That's what I want to talk about today. And I know I'm coming in hot. That is, a, that is an intense question to ask, but we have to go there. This is the final week of our series, the next chapter. The first three weeks of this series were focused on my dad's perspective as the founding senior pastor of Grace uh, about what, where God has taken us as a church. 
These final three weeks have been, have been my chance as the new senior pastor to talk about where I believe God is taking us next, who we are as a community of faith and, and how I think that's gonna play out potentially in the days ahead. Two weeks ago, I talked about the concept of self-giving love, self-giving love, the posture that we take as Christ followers, which I believe will continue to shape us into a radically intergenerational and, and uh, multicultural and compassionate community. Last week, I talked about the, uh, the humble pursuit of truth, our open-palmed approach to, to walking the path that God has for us, which I believe will lead us into an ever-deepening understanding of the love of Christ. Well, today, as we end this series, I want to talk about our approach to this broken world, our approach to the shipwreck of sin and brokenness. And to give away the ending, I'll tell you now that I believe we are called to be a lifeboat that is open to all. That we are called to row back into the wreckage so that we can rescue as many as we can. Or to use another metaphor, I believe we are called to be a refuge in the storm. So let's talk about what that means. To do that, I want to look at a passage from the book of Romans, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, but before we open it up and actually read a passage, I want to give you a little bit of the world behind the text, the, the, what was going on when he wrote this letter that helps us understand what we're about to read. So let's talk about this. At the time, Rome was essentially the capital of the world, okay? I mean, there were obviously many other cultures existing at the same time, but Rome in the, in the, the you know, Greco-Roman world, Rome was the capital. It was a conglomeration of people from all over the empire, different tribes and languages and economic classes, all rubbing shoulders in the streets of Rome all the time. It was a cosmopolitan city. Now, the church in Rome, the church of Jesus in Rome, reflected the diversity of that city. And all over, all over the city, you had small house churches uh, made up of different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles together, Roman citizens and barbarians, landowners and slaves. They were all following Christ together and worshiping as one. But as the church was multiplying and, and growing in Rome, two significant things started to happen, which began to kind of uh, shake the foundations of that unity. First, because Roman culture was very honor-based, you began to see people in the church who, who didn't really want to associate with people that they thought were beneath them. Uh, so an economic and, and social divide began to kind of splinter the church apart. Second, the Roman emperor, Claudius, he kicked out all Jewish people from Rome, including Christians, uh, for, a, for a period of time, which meant that for that period of time, the church was pretty much Gentile only. And again, in an honor-based society, it didn't take long for those Gentile Christians to start thinking of themselves as somehow superior or, or better than their Jewish brothers and sisters, even once those, those people began to come back to the city. So Paul's letter to the Romans is essentially addressing these, these divides that are creeping into the church. And his message is, is Pretty simply, you guys have got to change your thinking. You've got to become one again. Not because, oh, we should all, you know, we should all just get along. No, but because if we're not together in this, we're not going to survive. The message of Jesus depends on our unity. 
You see, this was a time in Rome and, and uh, throughout the Roman Empire when uh, persecution against Christians was starting to rise. Uh, violence and injustice and government-sanctioned executions, the storm around the church was growing stronger. Or to, to use our Titanic analogy again, there were more and more survivors who were drowning in the water of the world's brokenness. And this message of God's salvation was under threat. This was not the time for the Roman church to become some kind of exclusive club and start rowing in the other direction. That's not what needed to happen. Now, so that's why Paul wrote this letter. Now, I, I, you know, in our world today, our world is vastly different than ancient Rome, okay? We, we have a lot of different realities that we're facing. Uh, but man, it really does feel a little bit like the storm is closing in, doesn't it? It feels like we are in the middle of this, this kind of uh, chaotic storm. And it feels like there are forces trying to tear our church and the church apart. So I think as we read these words, yes, they were written for a very specific context in ancient Rome, but I think that these words are going to speak to us as well. So let's see what Paul has to say, how he encourages the uh, church in Rome to be one in the midst of this storm and see what we can learn about the future of grace. So please turn with me to Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Uh, in this part of the book, Paul has uh, gone on a very long, he's explained a lot of theological ideas about why the Gentiles and Jews are, are not, neither is superior, they are meant to be one. But then he says this, uh, he, he talks about the idea that in the church, every person is given a different set of gifts from the Spirit and we use those to build the church up together. And he goes on and he says this in verse nine. He says to the church, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Let love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them, bless them. Pray, pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think that you know it all. Okay. All right, we'll stop right there. Okay, so to withstand the storm of this world, the storm of persecution and division, Paul presents several ideas that the Roman church needs to live up to. There's a lot we could dig into here, okay? I, I, I admit that what we are about to go through is just a survey, but I wanna look at some of these ideals that Paul lays out because they're important ideals for us to pay attention to. First of all, look at verse nine. Verse nine, Paul says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. So essentially, he's pleading with the Christians in Rome to practice genuine love, genuine affection. That's the first ideal. Okay, so what does it mean for love to be genuine? What, how, how could you have love that's not genuine? Well, look at verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says, take delight in honoring each other. Now this right here, this is a pretty wild thing to ask of people living in an honor-based society like Rome. Like I said, uh, you know, your honor, your status in Rome, it's everything. It's everything. So the very normal thing for a Roman citizen to do is to take delight in honoring themselves. 
That, that just makes sense. To have a, a fancy title after your name or to, or to get your generous deeds listed on a plaque somewhere so everybody would admire you or to become influential so that others would want to come to your dinner parties. That's what it meant. You, you were an, it was an honor-based society and your honor was so important. And so for Paul to say this, the idea of, of spending your energy and your uh, resources and your time honoring someone else instead of honoring yourself, that, that, you know, much less to take delight in that, to actually want to do that, it's crazy. And yet that's what Paul is calling them to. In Greek, uh, he literally says, when it comes to honoring one another, lead the way. Literally, lead the way. Or, or some translations will say, outdo one another. In other words, see who can lift up and honor and esteem others the most. Delight in this. Make it, make it a game. Have fun with this. It is a race to the bottom. Or in other words, as I've said many times before, it is self-giving love. In verse 14, Paul echoes the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, bless those who persecute you. In other words, love your enemies. It's easy to honor people that you like, but what about people who are out to get you? Honor them all. It's a race to the bottom. You see, Paul knows that for this community of Jesus followers to survive in this broken world and to help others into the lifeboat of God's grace, they must, must learn how to set their own interests aside, their own honor aside, and to give of themselves for one another, even their enemies. They've got to row back to the shipwreck and look for survivors, honor others and not themselves. So there, there you go. That's the first ideal. In the church, we are racing to the bottom. It's self-giving love. Now, the second ideal that Paul introduces has to do with how we respond to the, to the things that God calls us to do. In verse 11, Paul tells the, his readers to, to do what? To work hard and to serve the Lord enthusiastically. Now, I, I love the Greek phrase that he uses here. You don't really see this in English, but um, literally he's telling them to boil in the spirit, to boil up like, like, a, like a cauldron of water, boil in the spirit. This is not just enthusiasm. It's not just be happy. It, th this is bubbling up and boiling over in how fervent we are to live out God's purposes. Boil in the spirit. I love that. Why should we be so passionate? Well, look at the next verse. Why are we boiling? Because we are rejoicing in our confident hope. And what is that hope? That hope is the hope of new creation. It's the, the hope of restoration, of, of resurrection, the hope of an eternity with God in a world made right. If we have that hope, if we're overflowing with that hope, then of course we're gonna be fervent. We're gonna be uh, you know, boiling up in the spirit. If that's our hope, why wouldn't we be uh, patient in trouble, as he says? Because we know that better days are ahead. If that's our hope, then why wouldn't we be ready to help? Ready to help, as he says, because we want to participate in that restoration. And if that's our hope and it's bubbling out of us, then why wouldn't we be always eager to practice hospitality, to welcome others into our lives? If that hope is bubbling and boiling out of us, then, what, then we would want others to join us in that hope, in that expectation, to join us in the lifeboat. Come on in. You can be made new. You can be saved. So there's the second ideal. There, there it is. In the church, we are overflowing with hope. The hope of new creation. The hope of restoration. 
Finally, as he does many other places and many of his other letters as well, Paul urges the Christians in Rome to be unified, to be unified. He says in verse 15, look, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. I know there are some of you who, you know, empathy is, comes super easy for you. You know, you're, you're constantly, uh, your emotions are constantly being driven by what the people that you care about are, are feeling. But for everybody else, think about this. This is actually a pretty intense thing that Paul's asking of his readers. Let your emotions be dictated by the emotions of one another. You've got to set aside what you feel for the sake of empathy. That's crazy. But then in verse 16, he takes it a step farther and he says, live in harmony with one another. Now the Greek word here for harmony, it it means more than just um, working together. It it means more than just kind of doing similar things. No, it carries the idea of actually sharing your mind, sharing your, your mindset, thinking together. So imagine that. He's, Paul's asking them to not only share their emotions, but to, to share their thoughts. This is kind of tough for uh, those of us who are raised in a hyper-individualistic culture, but this is the kind of unity that Paul is calling his church to practice. Oh, and then, and then get this one. He throws in this last little zinger. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Whoa. Again, this is an honor-based society that he's writing to. In Rome, the people that you associate with tell the world, that, that tells the world how important you are. You want to associate with people who are going to knock you up on that uh, the social ladder, not down. And yet Paul is calling them to set all of that aside for the sake of harmony, for the sake of unity. So put, put, the, put all those ideas together. Emotional empathy, thinking together in harmony, associating with everybody regardless of their status. This is the kind of unity which helps the church weather the storm, which helps the church stay afloat. So the third idea is this. In the church, we are one. Now again, there's so much we could dig into here. And I know, I mean, that those three probably could each be their own sermon. We could talk about it longer. But I think it's important to just hear these ideas and then step back and try to look at the picture that Paul is painting here. If the church is going to be a refuge in the storm for those in a broken world, then this is what the community of faith must look like. We are racing to the bottom, right? Radically self-giving, honoring and elevating one another instead of ourselves. We're overflowing with hope. We are driven by a, a powerful vision of new creation in Christ, letting that hope drive us to wildly hospitable lifestyles. And we are one. One, unified in a way that the world cannot understand. One in our spirit, one in our empathy, one in our love. When you see that whole tapestry laid out before you, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's profound and it's challenging because we're humans and those things don't come easy to us. Thank God that he has given us his Holy Spirit to guide us in this. Some parts of Paul's message must have eventually hit home. Even as, as the Roman church was struggling with these divisions, it must have hit home because in the days following the time when Paul wrote this letter, the heat did get turned up. The storm did close in. Persecution hit Rome. Violence and, and even plague. Many, many people dying. And yet through it all, the church grew stronger. It grew more unified. 
Many, many people discovered their salvation in Jesus and their place in this radically loving family of God. I wish we could talk about the number of people who went joyfully to their deaths in, in being executed in the Colosseum just because they knew how, how, where their hope was and they knew that they were surrounded by people who loved them and cared for them deeply. This is what happened when the Roman church got it and began to live out this vision of a completely new society in Jesus. Despite its early divisions, the church in Rome became a refuge in the storm and its message was unstoppable. So, okay, what about us, right? That's the obvious next question. What about Grace Church? Are we gonna follow that same path? Are we ready to be a refuge in the storm? Because let's face it, there is a storm coming. You've, you see it, you feel it, there's a storm coming. There are survivors drowning in the waters of our world, our broken world, and it's happening right now. Here's the storm that's on, on its way. On one hand, the American church is shrinking faster than ever before. We have lost relevancy in our culture. Young people are leaving the church in droves, and we've never been more divided. Politics, ideology, culture wars— yeah, there's one thing that we do all have in common. Everybody's angry. Everybody's angry, right? The American church is in decline right now. Meanwhile, the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of our community, it's reaching a fever pitch. A global pandemic, obviously, but also violence and injustice and hatred and anxiety and rampant immorality, the opioid epidemic, a decaying planet, Man, the very things that the church is supposed to stand for, love and healing and hope, they are the things that are needed now more than ever. We are the lifeboat. We're the body of Christ, right? We are the ones who are supposed to lead the way in healing the broken places of our world in Jesus' name. And yet we're in decline. There is a storm coming. So how do we respond? As a church, as Grace Church, how do we respond to this? As we look ahead to the, to the next chapter, the next season of our life and our existence as a church, what are we going to do? Well, the short answer is we're going to do what we've always done. What we've always done. And what that is, is continuing to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. To jump in where he's moving. Not, where, not asking him to jump in where we're moving. We are going to continue this journey of dedicating ourselves to healing the brokenness of our world. What does this mean? What does it look like? Well, just take Romans 12 and apply it to us. I think it means that grace is being called to be a community which looks and which loves and pursues everybody who's put in our path. It means that we will look for ways to honor one another, to lift one another up, especially those who are in need. Church is not about us, it's about them. And for them, honoring, honoring us, it's, it's a mutual honoring. That's what church is meant to be. If you're struggling right now with anxiety, I know there are many of you who are, or depression, or grief, or pain, well then Grace Church is a community that cares for you and you are welcome here. Bring your pain, let's heal it together in Jesus' name. If you're facing economic hardship, I want you to know that at Grace Church, we don't see you as a charity case because you are one of us. We see you as a brother or a sister. You're part of our family. If you're a messed up sinner, 
If you're a, a, a broken person with an ugly past, with addictions, or you're caught in the spirals of shame, if that's you, guess what? You are welcome here too. And you don't have to pretend that you've got it all together. Sure, over time, we are gonna call you to something greater. We're gonna walk with you towards healing and freedom because you have a destiny in all of that. But you don't have to be perfect to walk through these doors. You are welcome here just as you are. Do you know why? You know why? Because we are broken too, every one of us. We are only on this lifeboat because of the grace of God. None of us has earned our way into this spiritual family. You are a child of God and you have every right to be here, just as much of a right as anyone else in this church. Grace Church has been on a journey of hope and healing and we've been working at unity since day one. And I fully intend for us to stay on this path. I want our church to look like the ideals of Romans 12. We will be a community that races to the bottom in our honoring of one another. We will consider others as better than ourselves. We will be a church that overflows with compassion. When we see people of different skin tones or nationalities or genders or sexual orientations than ourselves who are facing injustice and hatred in our world, our response, our first reaction will not be defensiveness or self-righteousness. It will be mercy. There goes an image bearer of God. How can I love them well? That's what our question will be. Ultimately, I believe that we will be a church that is one, one in Christ, unified in our mission, and we will not let the world around us to divide us. We won't let that happen. Not by political parties, not by ideologies, not by self-interest. We will be one. That is what God is calling us to be. And I am committed to seeing us continue walking on this path. Now, I know that's a lot to process. Okay, I know that it is. I know that there is no possible way that we are gonna get all of that right all of the time. There's no possible way we will. We will mess that up. We've got some growing to do. I've got growing to do. We all do but I hope you hear my heart in this. I hope you hear my heart. As your new senior pastor, I believe that God is calling me to help lead us towards these ideals. He will. There is a storm coming in our nation. We all know it is, but we, Grace Church, we will be a refuge in that storm. We are the lifeboat of God's grace. And I know which direction we are rowing.